Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is the podcast where I invite my guests to put their postcards on the table as we explore the stories, memories and meanings behind the pictures and messages on those ephemeral little bits of cardboard. I'm Tom Jackson and today I'm delighted to say my guests are editor of Mojo, John Mulvey. Hello, Tom. And novelist Sarah Manning. Hello. Hello to you both. Now, John Mulvey is the editor of Britain's best-selling music magazine? It is, actually, yeah. Uh, Mojo, the mighty Mojo, um, which he recently steered through its momentous 300th issue. Yep, 25 years. 25 years. I think I did buy the first issue. Did you? Wow. Um, We've... um... We've had these amazing photos that people have been sending us on social media of their entire collections oh. on their shelves in chronological wow. order. It's like, it's um, they're a very dedicated readership. It's and, and uh, pretty the, impressive. The heaving floorboards. Yeah, yeah, reinforced floorboards. And John, previously, uh, Man the Music Barricades at Uncut and various other music publications. Um, and at Uncut, he spent a lot of time putting together the ultimate music guides, the history of rock, and other biographical specials about the, the luminaries of that genre. And John comes to us with a DN22 postmark from Retford, Nottinghamshire. John, do you still send postcards? No, I don't. I can't remember the last time I did. I, postcards are more bookmarks to me, I think, than uh, things to send in the post. So postcards you bought but then use as bookmarks. Yeah, exactly. I found when I was um, up in the attic going through um, my terrible past, basically. I found um, I found a Mark Roscoe postcard, which I almost certainly bought on the sixth form trip to the Tate in sometime in the mid eighties, and um, it, it's unbelievably decayed. Basically, it's, <laughs> and I think I might frame it because it's like it's almost you know you normally look at those beautiful pristine interior design Roscoe prints on people's walls, and this is just this crumbling kind of thing. But it, it's honestly, created its own new artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, yeah deterioration. It's so like if, we, if we shake your books on your shelves, some cards might fall out. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Well, Sarah Manning is a best-selling author. Um, her novels include Unsticky, House of Secrets, and most recently, The Rise and Fall of Becky Sharp, a rewrite of Vanity Fair for the reality TV generation. And when she's not writing novels, Sarah's a busy journalist and is literary editor of Red magazine. Indeed. And Sarah comes to us today bearing an NW7 postmark from Mill Hill, North London. North London till I die. <laughs> <laughs> well, a long way off, I hope. And Sarah, when did you last send a postcard? Well, I actually I do send postcards, but not in the way that I'm going on holiday. Um, 
But because I get loads of books in and loads of proofs, I'm constantly sort of sending books out to sort of friends who I think might like them. So um, it's quite handy that lots of publishers include sort of promotional postcards with with proofs because I just have this sort of never-ending stack of publishing postcards to send to people when I'm sending them books. Very good. So these are the advantages of the literary life. Indeed. A few free postcards. <laughs> That's all we have to show for it. I'm sure John gets much more exciting freebies. Well, the odd record is quite nice, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Do records still come with promotional postcards? They do occasionally, yeah. yeah. It's one or two labels still do send them out, yeah. It's kind of, I, I should keep them, actually. The one, one thing, when I was a, a slightly deranged younger music journalist at the NME in the 1990s, it, re- records often came with um, notes, handwritten notes, which, where the, the, it was a very ostentatious attempt to personalise what was basically a business transaction and were sending out hundreds of the same kind of promos to a bunch of different people. And... and I always used to feel terrible for the um, the PRs who used to have to try and personalise every one of those notes, and I, I got kind of kind of obsessed with it to a really unhealthy degree, and ended up started collecting all the notes from a certain <laughs> PR company, from everyone in the enemy office, just to watch the minuscule kind of changes of tone and the substitution of words that they kind of did. And it's, oh, I had no. this, it, it was weird. So you were tracking the kind of, the the, 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 the slow and desperate uh, yeah, destruction it, of those exactly, PR's souls. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of think it was more of a conceptual art. young journalist you were. was a horrible young man, in all honesty. But um, it, was, um, it was more of a conceptual art project than a kind of a malign kind of presence, but it was one of the few things that I think I've actually thrown away in the last 30 years of being a journalist. Well, the joy of the multiple. The multiple is something that uh, is endlessly fascinating for us. Uh, Certainly those of us who like to collect. Cumulative misery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we look at the cards that Sarah and John have brought along, I'll um, break the ice with a quick card of mine. This is one from the postcard from the past style, like I do on Twitter and in the book. Uh, An old card from which I've selected just a part of the message. And this is a lovely picture of uh, some roses, uh, which my guess are. They real. They're kind of in that hyper real. No, it's a postcard. (laughs) (laughs) They look like cakes. So it's like that hyper real seventies thing you get on cookbooks. Yeah, it's a J. Arthur Dixon uh, card. They they sort of specialised in these rather beautifully taken pictures of flowers. Um, And the the message on this, um, well, you can judge for yourself. The message reads. Who are you sleeping with? And what is Robin like? And is she getting on your nerves? So. <laughs> Mine boggles. I think it does. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that left you confused. I'll try another. There's another flower. More flowers. Another J. Arthur Dixon uh, floral card. This one was sent in 1970. It has a beautiful uh, Christmas stamp from that year. With oh, the wow. Um, and this says, um, I bought this card because all the other usual type of cards are so diabolical. <laughs> that one looks quite malign, actually, as well. It, yeah, it does distance. look a bit diabolical, kind of actually. Like... They look like they're just about to decay, actually. Is that a honeysuckle? I don't know. You're asking the wrong man, Tom, no. I'm afraid. Let me have a look. Let's say at the back. Yes, it's a honeysuckle nice. or woodbine. Yeah. <laughs> I might have read that before. slightly affected. <laughs> but it does look a bit like a triffid or something. It's something it pretty does. nasty, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the others are diabolical. I think the roses look more diabolical. Though. You think? It's kind of creepy, actually. Yeah, yeah. They, they look like meringues. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
just to let you know at home, uh, images of all the cards we discussed today, whether they're diabolical or not, are on the blog uh, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can investigate for yourself. Now, Sarah and John, you've been kind enough to come onto the studio today with postcards of your own. John, let's start with you. Um, could you tell me about the first card you brought for us? What have we got? Uh, we have a, a card of sort of it's a decayed kind of wall paintings from St. Agatha's Catacombs in Malta. I see a nice piece of blue tack on the back there. There is some blue tack, yeah. I don't quite know how that one got on, actually. Um, it's addressed to me in Dalston, um, which suggests it's from the late 90s. And it's from my parents, um, who only started going on holiday abroad after I left home, actually. <laughs> like we, so they were... One um, less to take, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But, but I, I think they were too timid to go in many ways. Um, but Malta was interesting because the only time that either of my parents had ever been abroad was when my father was stationed there on national service just after the war. Ah, so he had a history there. He had a history there. Um, he just missed fighting in the Second World War, but he ended up, as far as I can tell, kind of guarding... The multiple reward was awarded the George Cross collectively. And so most of his kind of duties, as far as I could ever ascertain, was, was guarding the, the George Cross and and going swimming, I think, pretty much. Um, but when I say as far as I can ascertain, I, that, that's pretty much the size of it because he never talked about it. He, right. In fact, in, in the way that he effectively never talked about anything at all. <laughs> so, so as a consequence, um, he, he would send postcards like this um, to his only child <laughs> and as a very affectionate and caring man, but with absolutely no emotional content whatsoever. That is such a hallmark of a dad card, though. It's an I amazing think. thing, yeah. But it, it's kind of interesting. So, so, so that's written by your father. Yeah, it's not from your mother. Yeah, it's, no, it's my, specifically my mother is. never wrote. She yeah. was, she was always quite sort of um, self conscious about writing. So my dad always did the writing, um, and so almost inevitably it starts with talking about the journey because the journey is far easier to actually rationalise and communicate and talk about than actual, you know idle pleasures so you know the flight was good and on time (laughs) (laughs) the hotel is as good as ever temperature today is 37 degrees c it was quite interesting when i was looking at that it was actually in celsius rather than fahrenheit but anyway just a bit warm um we have hired a car for six days to have sorry to have visit some parts of the island uh, this morning, we have had a few swims in the pool, which is lovely. Lots Sounds of good. Mum and Dad. Ah. So it's kind of that. That was kind of the extent of his emotional communication, a lot of the time. And like I say, he was a very affectionate father, but he didn't. I was. I wrote a piece about him uh, for my friend Ted Kessler's book a few years ago called My Old Man, and it was a bunch of essays from various people talking about their fathers um, and um, a lot of what I wrote was about his uh, degeneration when he contracted Alzheimer's did he contract Alzheimer's when he developed Alzheimer's yeah. later in his life and I actually found one or two postcards um, which kind of showed showed uh, even, even less kind of emotional engagement but it was more that his, his very nice sort of copper plate handwriting was starting to kind of deteriorate slightly but one of the things that I was writing about, and I, I reread it because it occurred to me that it was very salient when I found this postcard, was that he, that I think we always assume of that generation of people that because 
especially specifically men, I say generation of people, but I do think it's a male trait predominantly, that because that it's a problem not to be able to articulate their feelings and to be able to discuss their emotions and that kind of thing. And that that there is kind of a problem about having what I think I described as an unexamined hinterland. But actually, I sometimes thought that maybe, actually, my father was one of the most content people I've ever met. And I do wonder sometimes that, you know, our or specifically my kind of... Um, tendency towards self-analysis and that kind of probing of my emotions and that constant kind of weighing of how of how we respond to things and why we're responding to things in certain ways is that is actually causes more trouble than it's <laughs> worth sometimes and and so this this is very endemic of of what I think we perceive as as you know cold fish or or boring people or what people you, what, without a life but, what would but, you, you know, expect what is it that you feel is missing in that message then? To me, that seems a very open... It's very factual. It's but the, brutally the factual. Fact of sending it's brutally it factual, though. It's like, I, guess, I guess not that I've ever had cause to send a postcard to my children. And, and, you know, yeah. but, but, but it's like, I just cannot imagine myself, right? Maybe because we're, we're so acutely self-aware now and so all these kind of tonal glitches and the very banalities or repetitions that you find in your extensive postcard research it's, it's kind of you know how you think you see you see specific people or you see things in your life that that seem incredibly idiosyncratic and then actually when you see them laid out on a grid with a bunch of other experiences and a bunch of other personalities they're utterly typical it's that kind. Of, it's that kind of thing, and and this postcard just is so generic. There's like no kind of. I feel that the other fo- the other postcards from that trip that they were obligated to write were probably more or less identical, <laughs> and and it's that obligate and it's that obligation of the postcard. You know, I remember being as a kid sending the postcards when we got home because we never got round to doing yeah. it. But there was that... It was slightly shameful. Yeah, but there was that social... Uh, and, but we went to... We were always in, on holiday in Britain, so there wasn't the telltale stamp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, but but the, it, it, was, it was a rote thing to do. But at the same time, it's kind of just because it does seem kind of procedural. I, th- I think... The fact that there isn't a subtext is is kind of but there is maybe, a, maybe that I, shows I always think there is happiness. a subtext. The subtext is I'm thinking of you because I'm writing you the card, and I care enough to write you the card, and I hope you're okay. I mean, I think there is that subtext is there just in the process of doing it, don't you think? There's almost like a postcard shorthand, isn't there, of that holiday postcard? Because um, my mother was the official correspondent <laughs> on holiday, and I've got very similar yeah. postcards to her. It's almost like you have to go into postcard writing mode. We must discuss the weather. Yeah. We must discuss, you know, what the hotel is like. Um, Good. Good. I was really sort of close to my mum, but, you know, I was not going to get sort of like <laughs> exactly. any great insights. Yeah. And with my dad, who I was also really close to, if he'd been allowed to write the postcard, it would have literally been, Dear Sarah, with my name spelled wrongly, because he wouldn't, he wouldn't <laughs> add the extra R in, you know. Here, weather good, love dad, that would have been it. But I had just such a, a close relationship with it. And I sort of know that when I have actually written 
postcards, and I do writing for a living, I, I do follow the same, you know, weather's good, yeah. sort of found a nice bar, see you when we get back. I guess thinking about it a bit more, the point that I'm trying to make is that is that we're that we as a generation and as a type reflexively examine every kind of point that we're making. And we're acutely wary of cliche and 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 so whenever we're conducting some kind of communication like this there's all it's always laden with irony or is aware or we're aware of potential ironies and and the absolute simple unfettered joy of not having that kind of neuroses and just being able to write a postcard as simplistic as that and not actually hiding anything or having anything more to say it's kind of interesting. I think that's absolutely right. I think this, I think the jokiness of cards now, because cards are almost, or seen by many people, is almost a sort of ironic thing to send because they're, because they're old fashioned. Yeah. Um, and maybe because we're so used to like condensing sort of a funny but sort of loaded message into sort of 160 characters on Twitter yeah. or sort of like an Instagram. Yes. Post. The tyranny of having to be witty. All the I time. Know. Oh, it's just such a burden. <laughs> well, how would you how would you manage if you had to write the entire messages from the back of the postcards on on Twitter rather than one line? Well, they'd be tedious. That's the thing. They would have all that. Uh, if I if I found your uh, card there yeah. in a, in one of the boxes of thousands of cards that I go through, I would just put it to one side. Yeah. There's nothing to hold on to once it's been taken away from the sender and the recipient. Yeah. For you, it's full of meaning. Take that away, there's nothing there because the words are very plain, aren't they? Yeah. They, they tell the story exactly. There's no, and there's no jokiness. Because some people do, even in the, much earlier than the, uh, the, the 80s and the 90s, people were sending very jokey cards. Some people did. They, 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 they chose to be very humorous. And in fact, sometimes on Twitter, people assume I'm being amusing, but the jokes are there. People, people make jokes on cards. I was unsure that it, that it was genuine initially. Oh, well, a, a bit of uncertainty is a good thing, I think. Initially, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all real. I couldn't, I couldn't make that up. I'm not, uh, not that bright. Well, that's very good. Thank you for that card from, from Malta, and, I, and I'm glad the holiday went well. Evidently so, yeah. Well, that's good, Sarah. What have you got for us? I know. Um, I should say, it turns out, although it wasn't quite planned this way, you two have encountered each other in um, yeah. a previous life. We were bitter rivals in a previous life because I was on the 26th floor of King's Reach Tower or as a sort of grubby freelancer or melody maker. And John was on the 25th floor. Uh, as features editor. Feature. As grubby features editor. <laughs> but, yeah. So we probably glared at each other the in the very lift. small and pleasant <laughs> lifts, yeah. But just yeah. across one floor. I suppose you'd be going up from the ground floor. Yeah, or so. yeah. in the canteen or something. Canteen, horrible, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I was sort of rummaging in boxes and I came upon an absolutely pristine, strangely enough, promo postcard for um, Pulp's double A side, misshapes and sorted for ease and whiz. And it dragged up a memory for me because I used to drink a lot as a music journalist because that's what you did, that I was actually in the video of Pulp Misshapes. I know. I actually found some photographic evidence, which I just wisely decided <laughs> not to bring in. So I, th- I think this must have been sort of 95, so I might even have left Melody Maker for sort of the sunnier climbs of just 17, which was kind of more my natural habitat. But... um. 
a publicist asked me if I wanted to be in the Pope's Misshape video and I was just obsessed with Pope, obsessed with Jarvis. So what were you doing in the video? Oh, my God. Well, I was wrapped in, like, a massive pink feather boa, so I wasn't doing anything. I didn't have... I was an extra, so... There was sort of a lot of us that were extras um, as kind of like... every single listener to the podcast is now Googling, looking we like, for the feather boa. We were like the misshapes, if you will. And then they had this, this bunch of sort of like... I say that they were actors. One of them had been in Grange Hill. She was like Zamo's girlfriend. And <laughs> oh, wow. then playing the town is... But in this horrible case of like life imitating art, they just kind of terrorised us in the bar when we weren't filming. So we were just like stuck in one corner while these got kind of sort of quite... I'm trying to think of the PC term, these quite sort of, you know, urban sort of like sort of street kids just sort of glared at us. And where were you? Where was this happening? Some kind of nightclub, I couldn't even tell you, in London somewhere. I'm trying but, to remember where it was, actually. Yeah. But it, and I would love to say that you can see me in the video, but you would only see me in the video if I was standing right next to your TV screen, <laughs> ready to scream, there I am, in the split second that I, you can just make out a sort of a swoosh of pink feather bow. <laughs> there must have been an extraordinary amount of polyester and flammable oh materials God. in that and room. And you could smoke in nightclubs yeah. back then oh as well. God. I think it was where there was... Where, where did they have smashing or whatever? I think, wasn't it wasn't it there? even there. Uh, I th- Unfortunately, but it just made me think of... I wasn't a very good music journalist. I didn't sort of really enjoy it. I couldn't really sort of think of interesting things. It was at the time of, like, the Sonic Cathedral sound, and I just wasn't a Sonic Cathedral <laughs> of sound thing. But there, then there was just that amazing kind of 18 months of Britpop where I, I, I saw Oasis in the January in sort of... Water Rats. Water Rats in King's Cross... By the end of the year, I was seeing them in Brighton Centre, then Main Road, then sort of Nebworth, going to... It just sort of... just sort of, I was at a gig every night and it just seemed like Pulp played kind of every week and it was just such a big event to just get really sort of kitted out with your friends, get sort of... Just getting ready to go out was kind of like almost the best bit of it. Um... So it's just, it was really sort of nice to just be reminded of something that I'd all but forgotten, actually, and just sort of ringing up my my friend who was sort of there with me to just try and get her to see if she could sort of dredge up a bit more about it as well. Well, that must be a collector's piece now for people who are... That's probably worth a bit, actually. Do you reckon? Yeah. I reckon yeah. it must be. Might be, yeah. 20 quid? A bit you, more? You know, you, you think you're, you're... this, but and you get really excited and then you Google it. I mean, I've been doing some book culling and I've got some first edition Harry Potters. I was like... They're bound to be worth something no unless they're signed not a dicky bird although i did have i i did have this cigarette butt that i'd actually sold. <laughs> this is just you know why i just shouldn't have been allowed to sort of have a job where i got to meet celebrities so who's just, this who's this I relic just, from god what was it we called it cedric the singing cigarette butt and it was I remember meeting Jarvis in a club and sort of like lighting a cigarette and then the, the cigarette butt in my altered state seemed to be singing to me and I sort of mentioned this to Jarvis who just looked sort of suit- suitably sort of quite horrified. But for about six months afterwards, me and my friends kept Cedric the singing cigarette butt in sort of like a little matchbox and we'd sort of get him out ceremonially because Jarvis touched him. And, and you've still got that? No. I, oh. God, I, well, I don't think I have. 
I couldn't say for sure. I I would be quite. I can't actually I'd stick believe. To the postcard, I, I can't cigarette box from the past. <laughs> it's a new franchise. Postcard, but you know, it was quite a wild time. Um, it was a really nice way to spend my early twenties, but now I'm sort of glad that my liver is glad that I've sort of gone for more a more sort of cerebral kind of occupation. Well, the postcard, let's go back to the postcard, because this is a, this is a sort of extra-long postcard. It's an extra-long postcard. Was that a standard way of doing no, records? No. Because it, it was a double... It was a double A-side, so you've actually got the cover of Misshapes, which, um, so you've got pulp kind of drawn, almost sort of like, you probably won't know this, but when you used to get Bonte comic oh, back in yes, the day, the back up. page oh, yes. was this dress-up thing. So they kind of... Was it more, I wonder if that was more like a well, it's more, sewing pattern. It's more like a, a sewing pattern. And then what you have is the really controversial Sorted for Ease and Whiz cover, which actually did get banned and had to be redone, which is meant to be like a wrap of E or Whiz. I remember Kate Thornton, who was actually doing the pop page on the Daily Mirror, it became like her cause celeb. And, and that was kind of like her a sort of opportunity to sort of, you know, to sort of make... I think it was like her first big sort of story. Her relax. Yes. <laughs> and and it, there was a sort of campaign to sort of get the record banned. So this was the moment, wasn't it? That, wasn't this the moment, really, that Pulp moved into the into the, uh, the mainstream yeah, newspapers? Common, well, common People, people was be, before, yeah, I yeah. think. And the weird one about that was, uh, as far as I remember it, was that sort of Freeze and Whiz was notionally the kind of the B-side. That's but right. the record sort of got flipped, really, because um, people much preferred sort of... Misshapes was a bit of a rerun of Common People in, in some ways, whereas um, sort of Freeze and Whiz was... Well, just, record, it was actually. really good, actually. And do you remember when um, they did it at the Brits and Jarvis actually was on, like, the high wire, and so he was, like, floating above the stage. I think that was the same Brits where he um, mooned the Michael, Michael Jackson. That was the year when they, um, they when? headlined Glastonbury at the last moment, wasn't it? Was that when yeah. the Stone yeah, Roses right. died yeah. with the bizarre BMX accident or whatever and broke, <laughs> yeah. broke his arm or whatever? And they ended up headlining on the Saturday night. And they were heady days. It was just like... It was interesting. I mean, Pop, Pop were a fantastic band to go with. They were one of the first bands I interviewed for NME, actually, very early on when I went back to Sheffield. And, um, yeah, it was really strange. It was in the dressing room before they came on and this guy turned up in the dressing room and sort of said, right, see you. And he went off and he was like one of the former band members who was now a postman who left before the gig started oh. and had to get up at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> to do his round. So he'd left. And, and it was strange. There was just lots of really great tiny gigs where things would just go wrong and there'd, there'd be strange conceit. They did one show in um, Camden at the Underworld at the height of Sonic Cathedral Madness when they weren't doing very well, where they decided that... that because of the the whole kind of concept of shoegazing, they'd they'd somehow managed to create these these faux gilt picture frames, which they hung across the front of the stage, made out of gold sprayed shoes. So they were literally <laughs> shoegazing, and they sort of performed through these huge frames to you know about thirty people, and there were things like that. There was another one where um, he uh, he put a load of mini donuts on his ten fingers, and kind of. For the first ten minutes of the show, they um, they they kind of played this kind of vamping sort of sci-fi instrumental while he kind of fed 
donuts off his fingers to the to the you know thirty people at the downstairs at the Tufnell Park Dome or whatever. King it was. of the world. It was amazing. It was like, but it was it was extraordinary because it it was one of those scenarios where I think you probably remember as well, Sarah. It's, it's that sense of someone who so desperately wanted to be a star and had such an original take on it, but at the same time so seems so oddly unsuited to actually being a star yeah. so when when it actually did start happening it was kind of it was it was it was this kind of real triumph and you know there's a lot like they've been trying for years yeah. they? They yeah. were... and he was just such a great pop star I just remember him on pop quiz just where oh, he, yes. he was got every answer right got every answer mm. right next to sort of a really sort of nice guy, but nice but dim, but was just, you know, just somebody groomed by sort of a record company since, you know, sort of puberty, who had just no real <laughs> personality because his publicist hadn't given him one. Up against sort of Jarvis with just all those years of longing and studying. It's almost like that Morrissey thing of studying to be yeah. a pop star. I remember being in and someone's so- house when, when we saw that pop quiz. We were going out somewhere. It was on TV. There it was. And Jarvis got every answer right. And the, the chap was there. He said, oh, yeah, just like a young John Lennon. And I thought there is that kind of sharpness. And why would I pretend to be anything other than smart? Not so young, but yeah. No, yeah. no, 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 no <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that was, the, that was the difference with Morrissey. Morrissey was only at it for, what, five years or so of, of dreaming. Yes. Pulp, Pulp were an active band for, what, ten years, yeah. pretty much. Exactly. I mean, it's amazing. And and then, then you but you learn a lot in that time. Well, yeah. he certainly did, yeah. I mean, he learned, learned but he didn't compromise particularly <laughs> through that time. I mean, what, what he did do, which I think perhaps he... Perhaps he eventually kind of regretted slightly was that he became too ubiquitous. He did too many pop quizzes, basically, <laughs> yeah. and so, so as a consequence, they they kind of may, maybe maybe it's a necessary way of playing it when you've been waiting so long that that your your desperation to seize the moment means that you you can't say no for six months. Well, that was great. I thank you very much for that uh, piece of Britpop history, Sarah. That's really uh, quite unexpected. Um, a quick card from me. And change the tone slightly. This is actually a bit older. It's a sort of sepia picture of Snowden. And it's from 1959, I think. And it's the seaside, I think, is the story. Christened the costume yesterday, and Heather did not approve. I fancy she thought I was going to drown. She certainly screamed enough. I sent her for an ice cream. There's your next there you novel. Go. There's your next there novel. There we go. I've <laughs> got, you know, novel. a whole little scenario. <laughs> Just imagining one of those really horrible, like, wall swimming costumes. Yeah, it doesn't sound comfortable, <laughs> does it? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. My guest today are novelist Sarah Manning and the editor of Mighty Mojo, John Mulvey. John, what is the second card you've got for us today? The second one is... Um is a fragment of postmodernism past, I think. It's um, it's a Biff postcard. I don't know if people oh. can remember Biff. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of disgusting blue tack on the back, actually. Um, That's a sign of love. Yeah, well, it, as, as you'll see, it was something which I rather ostentatiously stuck over my desk for many years, I think. But um, So for those you know, young listeners, who was Biff? What was it all about? Biff was a, I think it was more than one person, actually. I think it was a team of people who, who ran a, a cartoon strip in The Guardian in, I guess, the 80s and 90s, maybe maybe longer, actually. I don't know. It's a, Maybe it's still going. It's certainly going a, from the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's one of those, um, it, it, it was kind of like appropriated old 50s kind of illustrations and that kind of, like a sort of a pop art kind of Richard Hamilton collage kind of thing with very sort of uh, arch intellectual kind of captions. There was always a, there was a lot of um, kind of post-structuralist philosophy kind of quotes, so that, which... It was quite clever dick stuff. It was really clever dick stuff, <laughs> yeah. And it, But it was also, it, it's kind of... It's interesting to look back on that time where all that kind of that, that kind of intellectual idea was in kind of accessible press. You know, it's like the the enemy. Before I, I I started writing for the enemy in 1990, but I started reading it in I guess 82 something like yeah. that. Yeah, when I first started reading the music press, I mean the enemy. I mean they did that great cover on like Youth Suicide, yeah, yeah. but it was. There were some sort of quite weighty sort of ideas in but there. But uh, it, it wasn't so much the weighty ideas and the, uh, and subject matter. It was actually it was actually the the absolutely maniacal sort of cultural critical name dropping that w- <laughs> that went on. Is that like the Ian Penman, the Ian Penman yeah. and Paul Morley and and that kind of thing, which you know. So this is bringing sort of critical theory into into uh, pop massive music. amounts of critical theory into every interview and review, which you know to a to a fourteen year old in the North Knox coalfield was was <laughs> utterly bewildering. I'm going to say, what the hell is going on? Exactly, it's like it's I like, like guitars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and it, and it and it was magically stimulating in some ways, but but. At the same time, it's like you know, I've I've been back and looked through those old issues. I still don't understand a word of a lot of those interviews and that kind of thing. And they weren't they weren't the records that I ended up buying a great deal. But I think I think it's really interesting to look at that as a as a as a moment where a bunch of graduates carried on their kind of degree work, fired up in, yeah. in, into, into into what were at the time. Massive selling magazines yeah. and massive selling newspapers and yeah, and how main youth magazines really. exactly yeah and and so you know and then it crept into the Guardian through things like Biff and th- so this one is a guy sat at a desk um, 
and it's uh, and it's titled the creative process oh, we, all, and, we all have a, a bit of interest in this one and it says uh, number seven displacement activity and there's a, um, a thought bubble coming out of his head and it says maybe i'll read the paper fix the washing machine feed the goldfish go to the bank then take a stroll before getting down to my latest wordplay ripped steaming from the haunches of language and then of course <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of a filled trash can next to it and it's um i don't know it, it's the sort of thing that when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I would stick, ne- stick up next to my desk and, <laughs> and think of myself as a writer, you know. But it's like, it, it, it's not, I think it's kind of, looking back on that, I find it quite problematic, the idea of that kind of mythologizing of the writer or something. I mean, obviously, I'm a, I am and always have been a journalist, unlike you, sorry, who's, a, you know, yeah. who, who's done long form and has done proper writing. And, but <laughs> it's kind of like, but it, it's like the kind of, the mythologizing of the struggle is something which, but it's it, being done in a very light-hearted, yeah. self-parodying no, no, way. No, no, but what I'm talking about is is actually being sent that by your flatmate and sticking it over your desk, and 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 obviously you do it with an arched eyebrow. But there is still this kind of this idea that you are actually creating something important when actually you're writing a 200-word review of the new pulp single or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that quite seriously, I do, I do think that's been. Uh, from our era as music journalists, I think, you know, there was a bunch of stuff, you know, I look back with such embarrassment at at, at the important, uh, the, what I perceived as the importance of my opinion as opposed to the thing I was writing about, you know, and I think that was that was a real common issue. And I know people bought into that very much by virtue of how what how they respected the the music press and and the absence of other places to get kind of that kind of critical commentary. But... God, it looks pretty tortured now, I must say. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, it's like I say, I went to sort of just 17 and then I was, <laughs> my first interview I did was Brian Harvey of East 17. It was just, you know, I just had my list of sort of teen mag questions. You didn't feel obliged you to know, uh, would your life be get t- down to your latest wordplay, ripped haunches, no. steaming from the haunches yeah. of language. And I, I think it was then as well that I actually sort of found my voice. Instead of sort of writing in the voice of what I thought a music journalist should be, of just and not really understanding who the reader was. Just I went to Just 17 and it was kind of like, I know exactly sort of who the yeah. reader is now because I, I was that reader. I do think, though, that on Melody Maker there were people like Catelyn and even sort of Taylor. They were just great writers because they, they had a voice. It wasn't just like a music journalist. You sort of knew right away, kind of, even without sort of looking at the byline, who had sort of written it and... At Melody Maker, they didn't know what to do with me, so I ended up being this weird sort of court and social reporter. They sort of <laughs> sent me off to do sort of bizarre things like um the War Child fashion show, where sort of like lots of pop stars had designed things, you know, and that was that was kind of really sort of my my level, which I sort of really really loved, you know, and actually sort of ended up sort of writing for sort of fashion magazines. I think it's because I'd grown up loving pop music and sort of really. Just, you know, when I go through sort of my boxes looking for postcards, I did sort of find things that I'd sort of ripped out of sort of Melody Maker and Enemy that at the time, you know, had sort of meant a lot to me, whether they were sort of reviews or interviews. But but just because I sort of really loved them, it didn't mean that I was going to be any good at doing that sort of kind of journalism. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you were sort of lucky to sort of find sort of the, the right place and the thing that you sort of loved early on. But for me, it was kind of two and a half years at Melody Maker to realise that maybe I wasn't really that good yeah, at music I mean, journalism. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, 
I mean, I'm always wary of attributing different specific styles to male and female writers. I think it can be risky, but but certainly, I mean, my wife's a music journalist as well, and um, I've always been, especially when I was at NME, I was always trying to tone down that slight hectoring didactic tone that that my reviews would have, and she would have a much more kind of measured, analytical, you know. Um, uh, you know, insightful way of writing about the things that, that didn't see everything in black and white. There was much more sophisticated way of writing, you know, which uh, I was always hugely jealous of. Whereas at the same time, she kind of, she quite often, especially when she was at, on the music press rather than on the broadsheets, she was always much more, you know, I need to be more polemical. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, it, I, think, I think it's where you were. I don't think that music journalism's like that anymore. It, yeah. can be, it can be if you're writing a blog or you've got to have a hot take on something and write, you know, 500 words on, you know, what Taylor Swift said last night. You know, the, the, there's still that kind of opinion-based stuff. But that, that, that's very kind of, the churn of that is so rapid. And, you know, one of the lovely things about working for a magazine like Mojo is that is that you do get an opportunity through the monthly ri- sort of rhythm to do things in an insightful and deeper way and to be more contemplative about the music and think more deeply about it rather than firing off, you know, angry things to try and annoy people, which is what a lot of the music press yeah. kind of sort of attitude was. And Mojo doesn't really have anger, does it? Because isn't there a presumption that what you're writing about, you're going to write about it in an interesting, nuanced, historical, interesting way, but at the same time, you're, bre- you're broadly, you've, you've agreed that this is something quite good and worth writing about. Yeah, I, I, th- I, th- I don't think our readers need us telling them that a record that they don't like that their kids are listening to is bad. Yeah. I don't. Th- I just don't see any point in doing that. What You've I do only th- got ninety six pages, or whatever. Yeah, one hundred and thirty two. Give beg us a break. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I do think what's worth is saying that here, here, here's a bunch of records that have come out this month. That if you're still interested in engaging with new music, that might remind you of something that you were into when you were younger, and is part of a, a kind of a grand tradition of sound not not necessarily a radical new rethinking of what sound can be but just something which works on fairly kind of you know solid foundations then here's a bunch of new things that you might be into and i think our our readers are really kind of responsive to that and are still really engaged with buying music otherwise they wouldn't be investing every month in a in a glossy music magazine for more than 300 issues 301 this week <laughs> Very good. Well, Biff was... I mean, maybe we'll have to have a further analysis of Biff at a future date. But, but you know what? The thing that I was thinking about him is that actually a lot... Without, without the kind of the intellectual baggage, a lot of that kind of framework has now become kind of... The, the, the sort of convention of kind of, of greeting cards yeah. business, you totally. know, in, in a much more... It, it's actually... When I, when I saw it, it seemed like a real sort of period piece. But actually, when I started thinking about it, if you go into Paper Chase or something like that, yeah. a lot of that kind of... Those retro pictures. Exactly, of, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's become kind of common parlance in, the, in a sort of arched eyebrow kind of way. When you received that, I think it was almost of a piece with sort of political postcards. There were a lot more of in those days as well. Very much so, yeah. And, and, yeah. and which were also very wordy quite often. Absolutely, the image was yeah. sort of secondary, and then the words were very much in the speech bubble. And in that case, you know, the speech bubble is a third of the card. Great screes of text, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Biff. Sarah, what's the final card you got for us? I think you're going to take us back in time. I'm going to take back. you back to the end of 1942. 
London's Piccadilly, or more specifically the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and um, Denham Street, where there was um, a place called Rainbow Corner, which was, um, it had been a restaurant called Delmonico's with a Lion's Corner House next door. And the American Red Cross took it over and turned it into sort of this amazing kind of wonder wonder palace um, where it had ballrooms, it had a billiards room, it had boxing matches there. In the basement, they recreated um, an American sort of soda fountain shop that they called Dunker's Den. And, and when they opened it in 1942, they symbolically threw away the key because they said that as long as there was a war... There would always be sort of they would always be home for any American servicemen. So it's just for Americans in London. It was, but they needed. Um, it was it it was staffed by Red Cross volunteers. So young ladies, you know, instead of knitting balaclavas and sort of like learning how to, um, you know, bandage wounds, you could actually vol- You could actually get a job as a volunteer at Rainbow Corner and jive with GIs. Good place to meet your Americans yeah. in London. And it, it was just such... I mean, nobody really sort of knows about it now. It's been all but forgotten. But at the time, everybody wanted to get into Rainbow Corner. So you would sort of come out of Piccadilly and sort of to get into Rainbow Corner, you would run the gamut of, young, of, sort of young women just desperately sort of trying to find a GI to get them in. There would be other women of less, you know, more easy virtue called the Piccadilly Commandos who were prostitutes and there's a blackout. So they would shine a flashlight on their on their ankles to kind of drum up trade. You'd have military policemen checking passes to sort of see that nobody had gone AWOL. Um, you would have... It was a huge sort of black market sort of centre because they were Americans who could get cigarettes and chewing gum. And then you would get into... Rainbow Corner, you sort of got in there and um, the first thing you would see is a sign that would say New York, certain number of miles, <laughs> Berlin, a certain number of miles. From from pretty much the centre or the symbolic yeah. centre of London. And, you know, any sort of American stars that were sort of going over, you know, would come to sort of Rainbow Corner. So um, Fred Astaire's sister, Adele Astaire, she actually married an Englishman. So she, she, she was sort of like one of the ladies that was kind of, um, that ran sort of rainbow corner and I've just I'm really I've always sort of been quite obsessed with sort of like the home front um I just really sort of love a lot of literature then so sort of um E.M. Delafield's The Provincial Lady in Wartime The Henrietta Sees It Through Joan Wyndham's Diaries and I always knew that I wanted to write a novel that would be set on the home front and then when I found out about Rainbow Corner, I was at a party and I was sort of like, oh, you know, just talking about kind of... that I, I really sort of loved World War Two, And somebody told me that their mother had run away from home at the height of the war, basically after seeing Rainbow Corner on a newsreel. So, you know, she just said, if I'm going to get bombed, I'd rather get bombed in London because <laughs> she just wanted to jive with GIs. So, so you've, um, but you have written about this. Well, I have you? written about it. So I wrote this book called After the Last Dance, which is half set in the present day and half set during World War Two about a girl who runs away to London to sort of jive with GIs in Rainbow Corner, um, and you know it was just 
it was just so lovely to sort of write about it, but it was just that really sort of compelling idea that sort of in the middle of sort of wartime when everything is so uncertain, this place that never closed. And um, just the thing that was really sort of emotional for me was actually seeing the Pathé newsreels. And when they closed Rainbow Corner in 1946, as an aside, they couldn't find the key because they'd thrown it away, <laughs> so they had to get a locksmith. Eleanor Roosevelt came over. I mean, it was such a big deal. And actually, when I was sort of writing the book, every time I came to the bit where I transcribed Eleanor Roosevelt's speech, I, I cried every time I read it because she just sort of said this thing about this, this club shows us that we can sort of work together. Oh, and... So when they tried to close Rainbow Corner, nobody would leave. And they saw, they all sang, you know, We Shall Not Be Moved. And in the end, the trumpeter from the band, who started playing Old Lang Syne and, and basically led people out, like the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And you can just see the pictures. There's people sort of climbing on lampposts. So it's like, it's just sort of such a, a place for me that I can just see so clearly... In my head, but it doesn't exist. They closed it in 1946, and then they put a plaque up. But then they just raised like that whole sort of like block of buildings eventually. So it's just an anonymous office block. But it just became really important to me that I wanted something that might have been in Rainbow Corner. So I actually bought oh, to a the postcard. I bought a postcard <laughs> off the eBay. Um, so what have we got? Let's have a look so at it's, it. So it's a Tux postcard. It's post, it's post, postmark 1947 and um, it's it's been sent by British Industries something and it's sent to somebody in Belgium, no, in Holland and I was actually sort of saying I can't read it because, you know, it's that weird old-timey handwriting but Tom has helpfully pointed out that the reason that I don't, <laughs> I can't read it is because it's not in English. I think it's in Dutch. Um, but the picture is the, the picture pi- is quite telling, isn't it? It positions it well for you. Yeah. So it, the picture is kind of this sort of nice illustration of sort of rainbow corner. So it, you and you're actually sort of looking at the building from sort of Shaftesbury Avenue. So it's kind of on the corner. So it kind of arches sort of out in a sort of triangular shape, and it's sort of hung with the stars and stripes and things. Um, and it's it is just a little sort of taste of sort of something that was just such a symbol of sort of the war that just doesn't exist now. And strangely, I mean, it's happened twice now. So acquaintances have sort of said to me, I was reading your book and I told my sort of mother. So I've had sort of like two sort of elderly ladies, one in their 80s, one in the 90s, who had, you know, who were just both like, yes, we remember Rainbow Corner during the war. That was all, that was the only place that anybody sort of wanted to sort of get into. That must be great if yeah. your book sends out a message to people who actually know about it. Yes. Um, so that's that's kind of... And it is just such a treasured sort of possession of mine that even though it was sent in 1947, um, I like to think that maybe there was like a little postcard rack by the reception in Rainbow Corner <laughs> and somebody sort of picked up this postcard. And the person who sent it maybe held on to it for a year. Yes. And then was just had to write to a sweetheart or something and just thought, I'm never going to have to do a podcast in the future about postcards. <laughs> so this wasn't, you know, the, the postcard is not the inspiration for the story. The postcard came later because yes. you wanted a, a memento of that, uh, of, yeah. of that place. Yeah, I did have, um, yeah, I, I, I did actually, you know, when I was writing it, I did actually buy... Um, 
a utility china cup and saucer. You know when you go to church halls or something like we're in the Scouts, and they've all always got that sort of um those sort of pale green. Yeah. They're sort of utility china. So during the war, when everybody sort of lost all their possessions, there was like this utility company that um and actually quite famous designers that sort of designed furniture and sort of clothes and sort of the barrel wear, Denby stuff. And I did actually buy sort of a cup and saucer. So were you drinking strong tea? I was that? drinking strong tea, but then I the cup broke. I had it on the windowsill and it was blowy day. And I, it was that thing of, like, Hitler couldn't kill off this coffin sort of I somehow have sort of managed to. But it is that thing as well that, you know, when you're sort of writing a novel, certainly for me, I, I live in it. I just It becomes almost like a film that I'm sort of in, and it's quite a sort of seductive way to sort of spend a few months because you just get pulled into this world that you, you don't really want to sort of come out of. So, so you were living in, in, in that place for a while. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you could, I'm kind of glad I don't work in an office anymore because <laughs> I talk while I'm writing, I cry. It's just, you know, it's, it's emotional. Do you do that when you're writing book reviews as well? Oh, not so bad, but I have got this. I, I Even when I'm texting, I'm just kind of like, I drive my friends mad. So when I worked in an office, not quite so emotional, but just the talk, talking, what you write is not, well, never the, makes me There's quite popular. a lot of words in these books, so I think you need to be fairly verbose. You yes, to, yeah. If you're not a verbal person, you're not a writer. This is true. Well, that's amazing. Thank you very much for sharing that, uh, Sarah. That's a really... Um, I, I, I hadn't heard of that. And I know lots of things. Well, so yeah, that's really this good. is the thing, actually. So when I started sort of going through my very many sort of books on the home front, you know, I'd look in the index and it's like, ah, oh, there is like one paragraph on sort of Rainbow Corner. And I, I did actually buy a copy of, um, I think it was Picture Post, had sent a photographer to Rainbow Corner because it just this is the thing even in sort of 1946 they made a film called I Live on Grosvenor Square about GIs but by that time Rainbow Corner had gone so they had to recreate Rainbow Corner for this film and I was very upset when I saw it because it wasn't at all like I pictured it it just sort (laughs) of looked like a sort of station waiting room so um it's, it's sometimes it's nicer to sort of imagine things in your head than the reality. Yes, yeah. Well, that's, that's a, a very profound observation, I think. Indeed. <laughs> Look, thank you both, you two, for coming along with your cards today. Um, they've taken us to some unusual places, as they often do, but that was, that was really interesting. Um, a quick reminder uh, to those of you at home, images of all the cards um, that we've been talking about today um, are on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk. Um, including this next one, uh, a last one from me in the at past postcard style. Um, this is a card, as so many are, from the Isle of Wight. Oh, <laughs> that's where we used to spend our childhood. Summer, Did you? Well, yeah, mine too. Yeah. You, you will. Neither of you would have been short of postcards. Though. They seem to do nothing but send postcards. Um, and this has the the the. the um, I never find them quite as amusing as you're meant to. The six wonders of the Isle of Wight. You know the needles you can't yeah. sew and all that stuff. Um, I've read this one. It's um, it's a salmon card, actually. And salmon are no, are no longer with us. But um, I hope you won't take this the wrong way, John, because the, the message is about someone called John, and it's not meant to be a, a, a comment on you. Um, John took his shirt off. That cleared the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's a, it's a different John. So. Um, now, or is it? 
Or is it? Yeah, well, hang on a minute. It's a cent... No, it wasn't. It's sent to Fulham. Sent to Fulham. Um, well, before you let you, uh, John and Sarah, back out into the world, I've got one more postcard for you both. Um, it has become customary to end the programme with one of these. You're both uh, very much from the music world. I don't know if you know about these. It looks like a flexi-disc. It does look a bit like a flexi-disc, doesn't it? Well, I think it, it you are be. more than half right. I, I think it is a flexi-disc, but it is also a postcard. So you could put the address on it, put a message on it, and send it through the post. Can you describe it, uh, Sarah? It's like, again, it's that kind of 1960s, 1970s, really sort of hyper-real photography of a quite striking sort of young lady. I thought it was Sophia Loren when you put it across the table, actually. I don't, I'm not, I don't know who it is. She's got quite a sort of... Um, Sultry, soulful yeah, kind of gaze. Yeah, and I think it's quite a challenging look. She's, she's really fixed the camera. So do you record the message on the postcard or you write the message on the postcard? I think you write a message as you would. Yes. But the front of it... It's got grooves on it. ...is printed with grooves. So what would it play, Viva Hispania or something like that? Well, David, through through the glass, has been keeping an eye on us. I think he's still Ah. there. And um, if we ask him very nicely, he might be able to use his... Somewhat old-fashioned equipment <laughs> <laughs> to try and make some noise out of it. Here we go. I can hear that crackle. Love it. What do you think, John? How many? How many stars? I was thinking it sounded terribly poignant for a, for a holiday souvenir at the start, actually. But Quite melancholy, isn't it? Is yeah, that, is no, that no, the it's time? no, I think it was. I think it was just that sustained note with the. Crackle. I thought it was the Coronation Street theme tune, just at the, at the opening bar. <laughs> this is like something they would have played at Smashing, isn't yeah, it? it is. Well, as the Calypso Muchacha plays and the mysterious lady in the shrubbery stares fixedly at us while spinning at 45 RPM, that's it for this time on Podcast from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts, John Mulvey and Sarah Manning. Thank you both. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> and thank you for listening at home. Bye for now. Wer hat das Glück, dein Cavallero zu sein? Ich hab geträumt, du schenkst es nur mir allein. You can see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me, at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book, Postcard from the Past, by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.